0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that each one here who is following you is a testimony to your grace. Thank you that we come here, not as those who are smarter than everybody else, who are better than everybody else, but simply those who have received your mercy, who have had your undeserved kindness poured into our lives. But I pray that tonight would be about humility, that we would place ourselves under your word, and that as we hear things that maybe we might not like, I pray that we would understand why you say what you say and that our hearts would be stirred for the beauty of Christ. Father, I pray that the thing that we come away with tonight is a greater love for him. Thank you that you have set your love upon us. And once again, we commit ourselves to you. And we pray for the Tobman family. We pray for Isaac. We thank you for him. Thank you for the encouragement that he is to us. Thank you for all that you were doing in that young life. And I pray for him and for Martha as they begin their time in Oxford. I pray for Ollie, uh, who's been in Plymouth a couple of weeks already. I pray for these young men as they head off to university. Lord, continue to shape them in your likeness. And bless them, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you will know that I have um, abandoned my roots because I grew up in a Church of England church. Uh, My dad was a a rector uh, and it is to his both pride that I am a pastor and a little bit of sadness that it's not in the Church of England and I don't have the fancy little collar. Um, And because I grew up in the Church of England, um, before I knew what the word liturgy meant, I knew a whole load of liturgy, the format, the programme of the service, I knew pretty much off by heart. As a church we would Come together, and we would say words of welcome and words of confession, words of adoration. One of the centerpieces of the service would be where we'd all stand and we'd say the Lord's Prayer together. I don't know if younger generations know the Lord's Prayer off by heart, but I did because we said it every week. There were times when I'd come to verses in the Bible and think, Oh, I know that verse. And it turned out it was a bit of the liturgy that I didn't realize was in the Bible. I just thought that's what we said on a Sunday morning. And it was soaked with the scripture. Every time. But for me, the bit that I look forward to the most, the centerpiece as far as I was concerned, was the creed. My creed is a statement of beliefs, a declaration I or we believe the things that we are saying, and we would all stand corporately and affirm together what it was that we believed. I said the creed before I understood it, certainly before I believed it, and yet there was something about the poetry. Uh, about the depth of the words even I didn't really understand everything it still affected the young Simon quite a lot to the extent that I loved the time when it came now we used two creeds in the church that I grew up in the Apostles Creed and the Nicene Creed and though both were special it was the Nicene Creed that really took a hold and gripped my heart it begins we believe and to hear upwards of 200 people in the service, saying together, we believe all these things had a real impact upon me. It's a statement of belief that is over 1700 years old. In AD 32 Five, the Roman Emperor Constantine he summoned 300 church leaders to the city of Nicaea in ancient Greece the goal was to respond to the heretical teachings of Arius who was a Libyan pastor who was saying that Jesus was not God that the father alone was God and that Jesus was just an ordinary man and Constantine wanted to sort this out and so we got loads of guys together and said we're gonna get it going And what came out of this Council of Nicaea and subsequent years was the Nicene Creed, a statement of beliefs that Christians have repeated for a millennium and a half. And so we're going to say it now. We're going to join together as we engage with our culture, as we see the things that our culture believes, it's vitally important that we know what we believe. So in a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to say it And if there are bits that you don't understand and bits that you're not quite sure why we say it, well, then ask. Ask someone who you think might know. That's what church family is all about, is spurring one another on in love and good deeds and helping each other in our Christian walks. So this is the Nicene Creed. And whether it's the first time you've said it or hundreds of times you've said it, we're going to stand together. And because we're not Anglicans, this won't go as well as it did when I grew up because we were brilliant at all speaking in unison. Won't go quite so well now, but that's fine. Uh, because we're going to stand and say together the Nicene Creed. Here we go. Let's say together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Though we may believe it, the majority of our country doesn't. We are in the minority believing those things. Research shows that probably no more than 3% of people in the UK are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled Christians who would believe those words with every fibre of their being. 3% of people. But while 97% of people don't believe that, it doesn't mean they don't believe anything. And there are certain things that our culture does believe and it believes incredibly strongly. And so that's what this series is about. We're going to analyze what our culture believes, a secular creed, a statement of beliefs that we are communally to believe. This is what it means to be a 21st century Brit. Maybe not everyone believes every statement, but generally it's sign up or get out. And we're taking these statements from uh, this book by Rebecca McLaughlin, who's a Brit, but who lives uh, in the States. And here they are. We believe love is love. Transgender women are women. Black lives matter. Gay rights are civil rights. Women's rights are human rights. And this isn't in her book, but because we employed a weatherman, we're gonna do one more. Saving the earth is of first importance. But here's the point of the series, despite, marginalizing Christianity and moving forwards towards a morally liberal progressive society which throws off the shackles of previous um, overlords and shackles and unites us all together we're actually more divided and rootless than we've ever been. I listened to a podcast about football you won't be surprised to hear that um it's put together by um football writers from the Guardian newspaper, I'm going to play you a clip that is part of a discussion about how football should respond or should have responded to the death of Queen Elizabeth II. The speaker is Johnny Liu, who writes for the Guardian, who as a left-wing, liberal, atheistic millennial should be embracing the fact that the UK has left behind its Christian traditions. Here's the clip.
1: There's a, there was an interesting um,
0: piece in the New Statesman this week about this, and I think the, the, the gist of it
1: was that we basically forgotten, as a, as a nation, we we no longer know how to express ourselves, express who we are, um, and and as a result, we now this what well, society now regards any attempt at expression as subversive and dangerous, whether it's a blank. Like, you know, a, a, a black piece of paper held up, or or a banner, or playing football on a on a on a Saturday afternoon. Um, I think there's, um, you know, there there is an extent to which um, we are we are kind of scared. We're like we're really scared and and um, directionless society, and we don't we've lost our moorings morally. So um, we don't we don't. There are no rules anymore. There, there, there are no conventions for this kind of thing, so we we just kind of we cleave to whatever feels good or whatever you know we see to, to whatever appears to be the prevailing mood on Twitter that morning. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know, I don't know what that's an answer, but um, it's a terrible country, <laughs> it's a terrible,
0: terrible country, and I hate it. We are a scared and directionless society. We've lost our moorings morally. Why has that happened? Now, Probably, Johnny Lee would say it's because we've got a Tory government. (laughs) But the real reason that people are scared and directionless is because they can't see their father. What is it that a scared little child needs to know? Needs to know that their dad is close by and will sort everything out. And our culture, though it would fight the truth with everything that it has, needs to see its maker and hear his voice. So what we're going to do over these six sessions is take uh, one of these uh, statements each time and do three things. We will affirm what is good. I am not going to say that every part of all of these things is wrong. It is not. It is far from that. We're going to see what is an outworking of people who are made in the image of God, displaying that image. There will be things that we can affirm and delight in. We'll correct what is wrong. What is an outworking of sinful people, allowing that image to be marred in their lives, living in rebellion to the God who made them. And we'll be captivated by Jesus. God from God, light from light, who is always better. Spoiler alert, the answer to all of these is Jesus. And through it all, our responses to these things will be held up to that light as we long to be more like Christ in all our interactions, especially with those who we don't agree with. Someone comes to you at work, at school, in your community, wherever you may be, and says one of these things. How do we respond? Number one, we respond with love. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So let's get into our first statement from the secular creed, this declaration of what our culture believes, that love is love. So whether you've heard this statement from a friend, whether you've heard it online, whether you've never heard it before, let's just take a couple of minutes. Um, just with those around you, what do you think it means, love is love? Just have a chat and see what you come up with. Our culture believes love is love. What does that mean? Anybody feeling brave? Anyone wanna, it's not like there's no right answer. Anyone feeling brave and want to tell us, what do you think it means, love is love? Anything goes. Okay. Thanks, Thomas. No judging. Okay. Yeah, can't judge. Okay. Free to love whoever. Every kind of love is valid. Love is the most important thing. There's a um, website that I discovered when I was a teacher and um, students would use words that I didn't understand because I was old. Um, (laughs) It's called Urban Dictionary. Uh, And I went to, um, I typed love is love into Urban Dictionary and this is what it came up with. A phrase meaning that the love expressed by an individual or couple is valid regardless of the sexual orientation or gender identity of their lover or partner. As long as what you're expressing What you're defining is love, then it is valid. All types of love, provided they are love, are fine. So that's the kind of, that's the discussion, that's the the statement that we're going to be uh, holding up to the light of uh, scripture this evening. Now, you won't be surprised to hear, the Bible has quite a lot to say about love. And so we're going to turn to a passage in a book that, again, those of you who are part of the evening service might find familiar. We're going to go to 1 John. Uh, So turn with me to page 1,227, 1 John chapter 4. I checked ahead, and when we come to this passage in our series, I'm preaching it, so I'm not stitching anybody else up. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. Tonight will be a little bit different in that we're not going to stay in this passage. It won't be an exposition of this passage. That will come later in the term, but we're going to ground tonight in this passage. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, page 1227 of the Church Bibles. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We
2: love because he first loved us. This is God's words and we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us.
0: We thank you that a scared society can come to you and find love. We thank you that a directionless society can come to you and find order. We thank you that a society that has lost its moorings morally can come to you and find a glorious loving command that sets us free to be the people that we were made to be. Father, I pray as we think about this
2: glorious idea of love, this oxygen of the universe, Father, I pray that we would see more of you, that your
0: heart would be on display. And that we would long, we would long with all of who we are
2: to experience that love more readily in our lives. That others may know it, others may see it. And that we would delight that we belong to you because of Christ. Father, help us tonight. Help us to see Jesus. For we ask it for your glory. Amen.
0: So wherever our culture is, whether it's now, whether it's back in um, the—I can describe the '60s as the olden times—but I realise that some of you, that's just when you started work. But whenever it is, thank you, Roger, staring at me again. Whenever it is, love always dominates. We write songs about it. We make films about it. We dream about it. We fight for it. Love is the pinnacle. It's the highest goal, and finding it is the greatest achievement. So surely, finding it anywhere is to be celebrated. Who are Christians to tell two men that they can't sleep together? Who are Christians to tell two women that they can't get married to each other? Love is love. End of story. Except it isn't. It isn't the end of the story. See, we are those who have come to know the God of heaven through his Word, the eternal word, the Lord Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and his written words, the Bible. We know God. And by knowing God, we get to know the defining truths of reality. What is it that is written in to the fabric of reality? We get that when we come to know God. These are everlasting truths that aren't swayed by the latest cultural trends these are truths that were believed in the fourth century and i believe today in the 21st and here in 1 john 4 we have one of those truths there in verse 8 god is love god is love not that god is loving or that he is capable of love he is love see the truth is love has no definition Outside of God. Either love is defined by God or it's not love at all. He defines what it is. And how does he define it? Look at verse 10. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, love has its source at God. He is the one who loves first, and its expression is the gospel. The fact that his son is the atoning sacrifice for the world. How do we understand this love that is woven into reality? We look at the gospel. We understand the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension and the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is love. What does that mean? Understand the gospel. If you understand the gospel, you begin to get a handle on what it means that God is love. The gospel is the great revelation of who the triune God is. And in it, we see not only that God is love, but that he shows that through human relationships. He enables us to understand something of him by arranging humanity, arranging society in ways that help us grasp these incredible truths. You see, our culture gets it. Nathan is right. Love is fundamental love is key, love is massively important, anyone who talks about love is displaying, is outworking the image of God in their lives, God is love, so when we talk about love, we are doing what we were supposed to do, but our culture doesn't get it, love is not defined internally, I don't get to decide what love is, love is defined by God, God who is love, The God who made us defines it. And so we're going to use the Bible story, the whole sweep of salvation history, to help us see things that are true about love because God is love. And number one, we're going to see that God is bigger than human marriage. Now, Ruth and I are trying to teach the Bible to Martha. Martha will be 18 months old this week. And so each time we have a little uh, section of the Bible and I try and sum it up in a sentence with an action. And so at the beginning, we're in Genesis and it was God made everything and it is good. God made everything and it was good. Unfortunately, all I think I've done is taught her breaststroke because basically she just keeps going like this. And I don't really know apart from the fact that she might be all right if we drop her in the bath. But, but the principle there is true. God made everything And it was very good. Turn with me to Genesis 2. We're going to be in lots of places in the Bible, and every other is going to be up on the screen. But I want to turn to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, because it is so fundamental. As Genesis chapter 1 and 2 on pages 4 and 5, as they describe God's creative act, I think there are two high points. The first high point is chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. There's peak number one of God's creation. Here's peak number two at the end of chapter two, verse 22. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib. He had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. You see, the perfect purpose of creation is for the perfect son of God to live with his spotless bride in the holy rest of God. You bring those two peaks together the glorious son of God, the spotless bride, in God's rest, living as they were made to live. And if the Bible ended at Genesis chapter two, you'd think that human marriage was the pinnacle of creation. It's what we all should aspire to. It's all about marriage. But hot on the heels of Genesis two, you'd be very surprised to hear, comes Genesis three, where the beauty and the glory of chapter two is shattered humanity's relationships with god with each other and with creation are broken and the chapter ends with love seemingly far from the scene flick over to me chapter 3 and verse 24 after he that's god drove the man out he placed on the east side of the garden of eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life Humanity cast from the garden, cast away from God's rest. The son of God no longer perfect. The bride no longer spotless. Out of the holy rest of God. But if we dig down, there's something odd. See, the Hebrew word in verse 24 that's translated drove out, in other parts of the Old Testament, the same word is translated divorce. But if we look at chapter 4 and verse 1, Adam made love to his wife. So it's not that Adam and Eve have been divorced. Something bigger seems to be going on that as we're reading this, we don't really understand. But the rest of the Bible will begin to flesh out. We need more of the story. And the rest of the Bible is the outworking of the faithful God of Genesis 1 and 2 and the rebellious humanity of chapter 3. Who's going to win, the faithful God or rebellious humanity? who at various times are collectively called his people, they're called his son, they're called his possession. But at a particularly low point in the history of Israel, the Lord speaks to the prophet Isaiah, putting a different picture front and center. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your gods. God is the husband And the people are his wife, and he will love them and call them back to himself, though they have gone far away. So, picture expanded more fully in Hosea. We saw it, didn't we, as we went through that book? As God's people are the adulterers, and yet God longs to woo them and bring them back. The prophet called to marry the unfaithful wife as a picture of God and his people, the idolatry front and center as they forsook their husband. For many lovers and because of that those who were alive at the time of Jesus and knew their history they would have been on the edge of their seats when Jesus was involved in a conversation about fasting with the pharisees now John's disciples and the pharisees were fasting some people came and asked Jesus how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the pharisees are fasting but yours are not Jesus answered how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Jesus, single Jesus, not engaged Jesus, never had a girlfriend, Jesus, was describing himself as the bridegroom. He clearly wasn't going to get married in a human sense. So what is he doing? What's he saying? He's saying that he has come to claim God's wandering people for his own. The Lord, your maker, is your husband. And Jesus says, here I am. Here, the Son of God come to win a bride for himself, fulfilling those shadows from the Old Testament about how God and his people are to relate to each other and Paul confirms this in Ephesians 5, showing us that this was always the story, this isn't God changing his mind, he returns to Genesis 2 to talk about Christ the bridegroom, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh, that's Genesis 2, the high point of creation It's all about marriage, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And as the great story of the Bible comes to an end, we see the moment that all of history is aiming towards. It's not the heat death of the universe. It is to a wedding, as the wedding scene in Genesis 2 is seen in glorious technicolor in Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What a picture that is. All that was lost in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, beautifully restored and better in Revelation 21. God is love. And he shows us what that means through human relationships. And when we see human marriage in the grand sweep of redemption history, we see that it is no more than a trailer. Human marriage is a trailer. The main feature is to come in the future, but here's a little glimpse of what is to come. Here's a sneak preview. Here's the trailer. Now, human marriage being a trailer has loads of consequences, but two for this evening. First, it means we shouldn't idolize marriage. We shouldn't. It isn't the pinnacle of human life. And our church shouldn't be the kind of place where those who are unmarried for all ages, for all reasons, feel on the outside. Marriage is a trailer, and so we shouldn't idolise it. It's simply pointing to the future. But secondly, we don't get to change it. Imagine the latest Marvel film comes out and I think it's missing Superman, who being a DC hero doesn't make it in. I don't have the right to download the trailer, edit in a bit of Superman and then upload it again just because I quite like the guy with his underpants on the outside of his trousers. That doesn't work. I don't have the right to edit the trailer. Here's the point. If marriage was simply the joining together of two people who loved each other, then of course two men could get married. Of course, two women could get married. But that's not the point of marriage. Marriage is so much bigger than that. Love is so much bigger than that. Marriage was designed by God with a primary purpose of being a trailer. The primary purpose of being a glimpse to the greater marriage at the end of time. A visual aid that helps us to understand that God is love, that helps us to understand the gospel, that the spotless son came to win a bride for himself. Those of us who are married, our marriages are trailers. Those of you who aren't married, marriage is a trailer. The greater marriage is to come, It's to help us understand the gospel. Love is bigger than human marriage. Number two, love is bigger than sex. So if we go back to Ephesians 5, we see that not only is marriage a trailer, but sex, that the one fleshness is also a trailer. So the united to his wife is the marriage and the one flesh is the sex. All of that together is a trailer of what is to come. But just as marriage isn't to be messed with, so sex isn't to be messed with. I don't get to edit any parts of the trailer. See, marriage, it points to the commitment, to the exclusivity, to the love, to the covenant relationship between Christ and the church. And sex points to the intimacy, the passion, the connection between Christ and the church. They're all parts of this one trailer. There's a phrase in Song of Songs, a poetic book in the middle of the Old Testament, full of sexual imagery and loving connection. Here it is. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse Or awaken love until it so designs. It tells us that sex is dangerous. It's dangerous. And that's because of what it points to. The passionate, all encompassing love of the Lord Jesus for his people is not to be taken lightly. And so the beauty of God's design of sex in marriage is that it's safe, it is a safe place as this moment is brought into the world. And just as marriage is a trailer that can't be changed, so sex is two. See, in Romans 1, Paul directly links sexual impurity, whether it be homosexual or heterosexual, with idolatry. See, we were made to worship the God who made us, worship the God of all reality. But by corrupting his good and loving design, in his words, worshipping the created rather than the creator, in the end, we are worshipping ourselves. Rebecca McGoughlin puts it like this if the faithful one flesh union of a man and a woman pictures Christ's marriage to his church, any sexual relationship outside that model pictures, excuse me, idolatry. It pictures a self-worship. Now, I'm not saying that sex in marriage is always pure and noble and righteous because humans are flawed. But the point that she's making, which is a point that the Bible makes, is that any sexual relationship be it heterosexual or homosexual that is outside of marriage of one man and one woman is idolatrous it is a reflection of our self-worship you see our view of sex reveals who we worship and the thrust of the bible is that love is bigger than sex because god is love so Jesus shows us clearly in Matthew 22 that sex is temporary. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Your sexual identity, your preferences, the are part of you for, for a split second in the context of all eternity. Whereas love will last forever. And really, if we think about it, we, we get this. We get that there are different types of love. When I say I love Ruth, my wife, and I love Martha, my daughter, and I love Dr. Pepper, you know that I mean different things. At least I hope you do. It's the same word, but it's different. And actually, this is where the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, helps us. And we can see it just here. The word eros is Greek for love. It's where we get our word erotic. And it's describing the love between a husband and a wife, erotic love. There's the word philia from where we get, say, philosophy, love of thought. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And it's the word that's translated in uh, love in John 11 when Jesus comes to Lazarus. So the sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is ill. You read that, you know he's not talking about um, he wants to marry Lazarus, that he is in love uh, with Lazarus, that he loves him as a brother. And then another word is agape, this covenant, this undeserved love, this unconditional love that is translated love in 1 John 4, God is love. There are different words that describe different types of love so that we can see that there are different types of love. And as you begin to see how the Bible describes love, you begin to see the priorities that it puts on these different kinds of love. John, in his gospel, we're seeing it. He never names himself. He describes himself as the one that Jesus loved, phileo. There is a deep, loving connection between John and Jesus. Of course, it's not erotic. Of course, it's not described by eros. It's phileo. It's deep, brotherly love. The Bible spends much more time calling us to non-erotic love, same sex and the cross sex, than to erotic love, because love is eternal. Whereas erotic love is just temporary. See, we are laying foundations for eternity. We're having that eternal perspective, not becoming transfixed by what is now. And you see, it places the emphasis away from the nuclear family, mom, dad, and 2.4 children, that we're tended to idolize and back on the church as the place where God's glory is seen. Rather than prizing biological family above all, Jesus stressed the family of the church. See, sex is a monumental idol in our culture. And it has done untold damage because it has become a God rather than pointing to God. See, sex and our sexual desires are to point to him and unfulfilled desires, whatever they are, in whatever sphere of life they are, are to make us long for new creation. To long for that moment when the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven, beautifully dressed for her husband. Does your desire for justice, your desire for truth, your desire for healing, for peace, cause you to long for Christ? to come and make everything new. Show should your desire for sex. You can't fulfill your desire for justice. It's just not possible. And if at the moment you can't fulfill your desire for sex, well then just in the same way, it is to cause you, to to encourage you, to look to Christ and to long for that time when he will return. And it's difficult. It's difficult because you feel helpless and you feel weak and you feel like your desire is too big for you and you can't cope with it and you just need to do something about it. But can I tell you that Christ is worth it? He is worth it and he satisfies like no one else can. It's what Neil was talking about this morning. There is satisfaction found in Christ that can be found nowhere else. All of our longings, all of our desires. They find their satisfaction in Jesus. And so finally, because God is love, love is bigger than marriage. It's bigger than sex. And finally, it's bigger than us. See, God is love. And so those who are in Christ are learning to love like him, which means we have a right view of ourselves in relation to God and in relation to others. You see, to follow Christ when it comes to sex can feel like the most difficult thing you're called to do. It can feel so hard to live it for yourself, to live it in the context of other people. It can feel so, so hard. But I say this with love. Christians are never promised an easy life. If you think your Christian life is hard, what is it that you signed up for? What did you expect? Look at these words from Jesus. Then he called the crowds to him along with his disciples and said, Who- Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life. That doesn't sound easy, does it? Because it's not. It's not easy. And for some, that will be desperately hard when it comes to sex. For others, it will be desperately hard when it comes to money. For others, it will be desperately hard when it comes to whatever. There are hundreds of ways that we creatively find to mess things up. Every day, we are to crucify what we want, our desires, our wants, our needs,
2: and we live for him. A Christian life that isn't about denial isn't a Christian life there is nothing better,
0: nothing better than following Jesus, than losing a life now to save it for eternity. To see ourselves as God does is to see a broken human, restored through Christ, living as a new creation and becoming more like Christ, longing to see, to live as our Savior does. And we should view ourselves properly in relation to others as well. It is heartbreaking, heartbreaking that the traditional message that gay people have heard is that God hates you and that you aren't welcome in church. That is desperately sad. A culture of judgment isn't helpful. And the way the church has been very good at saying no without telling the better story has just been appalling that you just make it sound like God has a beef with a particular area of society, and there's no particular reason, it's just random. We need to be those who don't compromise one inch on the truth. Sex is only for marriage between one man and one woman. That is the truth, and we don't compromise. Yet we need to do so aware of who we are and where we'd be without Christ. Paul does this in 1 Timothy. We would learn a lot from Paul in this letter. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Paul is there in his lectern. He is pointing to all of humanity and say, you are sinners. What does he say immediately afterwards? Amen. Do you see the point? Paul states the truth. This is sin. This is rebellion against the God who made you. But let me tell you, when it comes to sinners, I'm at the front of the key. I'm not better than you. I'm no different from you. It's just that God has set his love upon me. Paul's not standing in judgment. He is telling the truth, knowing he has no authority other than Than from God. He is God's mouthpiece. He isn't better. He calls himself worse, the worst of sinners. And so should we. We should follow Paul. We should disagree with Paul. No, Paul, you're not the worst of sinners. I am. You see, the churches who have weakly compromised, who've changed the meaning of the Bible or have ignored it completely when it comes to sex and sexuality, they will have to answer to the God of truth who they have disobeyed. the churches who have strongly stood on the truth without love and are quite pleased that there aren't any gay people in their church will have to answer to the God of love who they have disobeyed. But we have a better story, a better story. We know the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Through Christ, the atoning sacrifice, we know love like we're supposed to. We know the love that the universe is written in. What is it that gay and same-sex attractive people need from us? It's the same of what anybody who doesn't know Christ needs from us. They need to grasp how wide and deep and high and long is the love of God who is in Christ Jesus and courageously live it and infectiously spread it. That's what people need From us. They need us to get God's love and then to live it out. Look at this from Rebecca McLaughlin again. The person who leaves a gay relationship to fall into the arms of Christ should feel more love, not less. The arms of those who are Jesus' body here on earth should be his tangible embrace. That's how we are to respond. We are not to compromise on the truth. That is the place where our culture is most hitting at the moment, wanting us to compromise on the truth. But as we stand firm on that, we do it with love. We do it with Christ on display. We do full of the love of God in Christ Jesus. So, how do you respond when a friend says, "Love is love"? You smile broadly. You delight in the fact that they have brought up love, and you bring them into the greatest truth in all of the universe: that God. Is love and that love can be known through his son Jesus. One last time to Rebecca McLaughlin. If Christians lived like this with God's love on display in every area of life, the plague of loneliness would be over, and all of us, single or married, same sex attracted or straight, old or young, widowed or newlywed, would be embraced into a family. These are the first tremors of the earthquake of God's love that will remake the world when Jesus
2: returns. Do you see? Do you see? The answer sometimes is no, because God's love is the yes.
0: The tremors of the earthquake are rippling, and one day, one day, to mix the metaphors, the tsunami of God's love will drench us. And as Neil often uses, we will be in that place where love is like breathing. And we will understand that as the bride
2: of Christ together, we will love for eternity. Not as husband and wife, but as
0: children, brothers and sisters together of the heavenly father who made us and united
2: us to his precious son, the atoning sacrifice for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are love. We thank you that you expressed your love for us through the gospel, showing us Christ, giving us Christ, accepting us through Christ. Father, I pray that we would follow Paul as he follows you,
0: that we would not compromise an inch on what you describe as sin, but would see ourselves as the chief
2: of sinners. Simply standing because of your mercy and your grace. Help us, Lord, to be bold. Oh, Lord, but help us to be loving. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray particularly for the teens. Oh, Father, growing up in a culture where this is just
0: accepted some of the things that I've said tonight would be classed as hate speech.
2: The quoting parts of the Bible can get you cancelled. Father, I pray. I pray for boldness. I pray for confidence in the word of God. But again, Lord, I pray for love. Forgive us, Lord, when we've made anyone feel like they're not welcome in our family, in this building. And I pray, Lord, that the only offence would be the gospel. Father, help us. We need you. We long that you would satisfy us,
0: that you would build us up, that you would strengthen us, and that by your Spirit, we
2: would be able to show a world desperate for love, what it means that God is love. Amen.
0: Uh, We've got time for one question, which is quite good, because... Only one came through. Um, how should we react to close friends or family who are getting married in a same sex marriage? Does going to a wedding endorse it? Uh, one of the guys who I used to lead um, Contagious, the youth camp in the summer uh, that we do, uh, said his um, sister is gay. And he always said, The thing that my sister needs most of all isn't to be attracted to men, it's Jesus. That was the thing. And so everything that he did, every decision that he made was based around what he's going to do the most under the sovereignty of God to win her for Christ. So the big answer that sounds a bit like a cop-out is whatever will draw that person or those people closer to Christ. And actually, I know of um, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Spirit-filled Christians who have made Different, different decisions uh, and have done things differently because they felt that would be the best thing to do.